Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Brian Kelly, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, crisis in America, street protests, some peaceful, others violent, erupting from coast to coast. The market on edge as the nation slowly reopens from the coronavirus lockdown. But will the growing protests stall the economic recovery? We kick things off tonight with Steve Leisman, who has more on that story. Steve. Melissa, thanks. Uh, with the understanding that loss of life and injury are the most important aspects to what's going on with the crisis right now, uh, there is renewed concern about the economy as well, with concern that it would uh, hurt the reopenings that have been underway, along with perhaps another round of infections because of all the demonstrations. Economist Diane Swank, she tweeted out today, there's little question the horrific events of this weekend will exacerbate the economic crisis triggered by COVID-19. Businesses that were already holding on by a string will close permanently. What started as a health crisis is still a health crisis, but also much more. Now, not all economists agree. Some were taking a much uh, more wait-and-see attitude, in part because they wanted to see how long these demonstrations and, indeed, riots lasted. Uh, Stephen Stanley at Amherst Pierpont, he wrote a, a long piece today saying, it's too soon to say whether the economy will be transformed in any major way by the events of the past week. But my guess is that for most of the country, the timing and broad trajectory of economic recovery will not be dramatically altered. Longer run, hopefully, we can find ways to expand opportunity in a way that will more effectively tap the potential of everyone. That would be good for the economy long term. The economic story this week before the, these issues was going to be about bouncing off the bottom. And indeed, what we have is, a, is really a paradox here. Bouncing off of terrible numbers to numbers that are still absolutely terrible. The ISM today coming in above 43. We're looking for 44, but it's better than the 41 we have. Same story with ISM services on Wednesday. You're going to get another 1.8 million jobless claims expected for Thursday. That's terrible, but not as terrible as we had before. And another 8 million unemployed. Uh, again, that'll be accompanied by a 20% unemployment rate. That'll be on the way up. Melissa, there is some uh, an some analogs here. It's a terrible one, but to the 1960s, which didn't have much overall effect on economic or overall GDP. But there were there are several studies that show that the impact on African American businesses, uh, African American employment and income over time, and can stretch out decades from riots like the, like these. But however, in the 60s, they were talking about four years worth of unrest. In terms of, Steve, in terms of how uh, the pandemic has negatively impacted uh, the economy, I mean, is it is it the economist consensus view that it has impacted um, some of the, the less economically advantaged people uh, in, in society? And, and so therefore, these protests have the potential of making that divide even greater. And in as much as uh, that economic divide translates into an uh, opportunity divide as well, that exacerbates problems. I think that's right on, on all those counts, Melissa. Um, the data show that African-Americans have suffered more when it comes to unemployment uh, from the COVID crisis. Uh, they've suffered uh, more when it comes to the health effects uh, from the COVID crisis. Uh, and you went into this with uh, record levels of, of inequality 
And what's going to happen here is that inequality is going to be made worse. You did have a decline in the African-American and Hispanic unemployment rates. Uh, they still remained above those for whites. So you had longstanding issues uh, and, and, and they were exacerbated by the crisis. And then you're going to have a knock-on effect potentially if these riots do indeed destroy property in the inner cities, which, by the way, Melissa, I think you already know, the inner cities were going to be challenged anyway because of people's concern about high-density population mm -hmm. areas. Yep. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Um, Pleasure. It's a difficult conversation to have, Tim Seymour, in that we don't like to look at the markets through this prism of people's lives and inequality in society, but it's a conversation that we have to have because it does have an impact on our economic well-being, um, which impacts all sure. of society and also impacts, of course, the markets. Yeah, and when people are looking at risk appetite for markets, uh, they're they're trying to assess you know all of these exogenous factors, and and frankly, there 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 has been a bit of a disconnect. And and when you look at the pain that's going on in the country, um, and some of the trends that we're talking about, I mean, the secular trends for for U.S. cities right now are not good. Whether it's commercial real estate, uh, whether it is some of the you know essentially the 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 exodus out. Um, but some of the concentrations for uh, not only just restaurants and bars and small businesses, but obviously some of the big chains that are packing up and leaving. So um, if you look at what assets performed today and which ones did not, uh, it was an interesting day in that if you look at equities, uh, we've at times in the last two weeks and, and really two months spent time talking about oversimplifying the growth versus the value trade. But if you look at what was what was moving today um, first of all you've had a dollar that's almost five percent off of its top so uh, the 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 dollar move lower has been very supportive to miners and reflation trades so look at things like Freeport Mac look at some of the steel companies um, look at those trades but but let, let's be clear Amazon uh, Apple um, some of the mega cap tech names um, have been basically pushing back to all-time highs have not really given any ground um, while you also had a very strong day for airlines so um, it's clear to me that to, to sum up, markets right now are, are not addressing the job loss. They, they just aren't. Um, they're, they're looking at stimulus packages, which whether it was Jamie Dimon saying that there are many consumers in the U.S. that are better off because of stimulus in terms of their household income right now. Um, that's part of what the market, I, I believe, is calculating. It was an interesting sort of barbell approach to the market, as Tim had pointed out. It's sort of the, the leaders that had been working for a long time viewed a little bit more defensively like the large cap technology plays. But the reopening trade was well underway, Beeks. I mean, we saw, um, we mentioned the airlines, retail doing well. I mean, casinos, cruise lines, the things that would really benefit from the economy just resuming its activity really thrive today. Yeah, absolutely. I think what people are, at least to me, the message from the market is they're saying is that people are going to get back to business in general a lot faster than perhaps we thought in April or so. Uh, that's not my particular view on the market. I think we've had quite a tremendous run. I don't think when you're talking markets, when markets are at their highs, that's when you want to start pairing off some risk as opposed to adding on the risk. The time to add risk was, you know, at the lows back in March and April when everybody was panicking. And we said, hey, listen, there could be this big short covering rally. Well, it's really been quite a rally. Now's the time to take a little bit off the table, in my view. Uh, Jeff Mills, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not uh, what is going on in, in America factors in at all, even if it's just an additional risk 
um, at the margins, simply because even going into this weekend, we had uh, the fears about reopening or, or the concerns that maybe a reopening would not be as robust. We had increasing China-U.S. tensions. I mean, there are plenty of other reasons to be uh, cautious on these markets. Sure, and, and I have been, and I think this is just an additional risk to pay attention to. I think in a lot of senses, the market has been conditioned to somewhat ignore whether it's protests or geopolitical events, because throughout history, there are so many examples of these being short-lived. But I do think, as Steve pointed out, you know, there are a couple of variables here that make this different, potentially, from a potential risk perspective. So you have people gathering. So is there a second wave concern? And then this reopening trade that we're talking about, this is predicated upon people getting out of their house and resuming normal activity. So does this delay that in some way? Because the market action that we're talking about here, it hasn't been a rotation. It's actually been a broadening out. So investors moving into some of the cyclicals in addition to what has already worked. So the question is, is that going to be able to continue just given the backdrop? The protests aside, um, we've already had a lot of risk, as you mentioned, and we already had a lot of these typical correlation breakdowns. So forward earnings estimates falling, the market rising, uh, PMIs falling and remaining depressed, the market's rising. So how long is that sustainable? I don't know. I think it's an interesting technical setup here because as we've had this broadening out, you now have 96% of the S&P 500 trading above its 50-day moving average. I mean, this is similar to some of the biggest momentum surges that we've seen over the past 50 years. So I think near term, the market is definitely overbought. The equity put call ratio continues to be really low. So that's something to pay attention to. So over the next two or three months, I think you have to err on the side of us at least consolidating, if not correcting. I'll, I'll end on somewhat of a bullish note because I've been so bearish over the past couple of weeks. But this momentum surge that I'm talking about, although over the next couple of months it would be consistent with the consolidation or a correction, if you look out six to 12 months, it's actually been a little bit more bullish than bearish. So if you look at 91, the early 2000s, uh, 2009, 2016, all of these durable lows were associated with momentum surges like this. And we had these consolidation periods, but then over the long term, it actually ended up being a good sign. So we'll see. Maybe that's something to hang our hat on. That is a silver lining, but that is a that is a staggering stat in case you didn't have your your pencils and paper out when, when Jeff Mills is going through it. Ninety six percent of the S&P 500 above the 50 day moving average. Steve Grasso, what do you make of this technical setup here? So, so I think the, there's so much to unpack with what, what the rest of the traders had, had just mentioned. Let's start off with on Friday, you had an MSCI rebalance. So that fluctuated and that pushed around a lot of the indices in different directions. Today, you have the first day back after that rebalance. So I wouldn't make too much of it on a day-to-day -day, uh, bet, but let's get back to what BK said. I think what's going on is you had such an overreaction to the downside that people were betting against this market ever opening up again. Now, the market starts to open up again and people were lopsided. So when BK was talking about a, a massive short covering rally, yes, we've seen that. Now, the 200-day moving average to throw in a technical, technical is at 3,000. Right now, we're at 3055. So if you really start to look at it, use that as your bull bear barometer at 3K in the S&P, whether you want to put risk on or take risk off. But I do think that I would err on the side of being cautious now because if, if volatility spikes again, which we've seen it a lot, and you have a reinfection rate, and then you get hospitalization rates starting to get off, off the charts, you don't really have earnings. 
to fall back on anymore, right? So you sort of have a market that is looking for guidance, overreacted to the downside, now is pushing higher. I think what Jeff said is really important, though, to leave off on. It's a broadening of the, uh, of the marketplace that is rallying. Used to be tech, used to be only fang. It's not just about rotation. If we can get those growth names and the value names start to perform while the growth is there, then this market can make new highs. I don't think there's any reason, Melissa, for the market to make new highs just yet. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the bears are on the run right now, and it's about two things, corona and the Fed. You get a headline out of Spain with no new deaths in the last 24 hours, that's a tremendous tailwind for the market. You get stimulus from every central bank uh, in, the, in the planet, on the globe, you can't get in front of this. I would say, to wrap it up with Tim's statement, watch the gold miners, watch gold. Printing has to catch up at some point. By the way, we should point out that Steve is joining us on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and that's why he's wearing a mask, because that is a, a strict rule with the reopening there. Um, our, your next guest, by the Thank way, you. says one key part of the market could see some more downside risks if the protests intensify. Let's bring in Julian Emanuel, BTIG's chief equity and derivative strategist. Julian, always great to speak with you. Great to be with you, Melissa. You think uh, small caps could be hit the hardest. Why? What's, what's the thesis behind that? Well, so, so the thesis is, and again, all this talk that we've had, about the momentum surge upward, you know, the fact is, is that once the bear market ends and, you know, we're not ready to say that this is a new bull market, but we've certainly rallied massively off the lows, more than 50 percent. When you look at small caps, there is a unique risk to the potential for a pullback. And when you look at small caps, basically what you have is, you know, aside from the strain of the social unrest, you've also got this dynamic whereby uh, the government is sort of slow playing the stimulus. And if there is any silver lining, and it's very difficult to find the silver lining in the amount of tragedy we've seen in the last few days, is that maybe the scenes that the, our government is seeing will cause them to accelerate this stimulus, which America's workers and small businesses need. And to the extent that that is, is delayed towards the fall, that's the risk to small caps in our view. So just to be clear, it's the run in the small caps plus the delayed stimulus. Is that correct? OK. OK. And in terms of the pullback that you're predicting in small caps, is it going to be deeper than that of uh, the one that you're predicting for the broader markets? So so from our point of view, again, what we think is this trade over 3000, it was it's significant. When you look at today's market action, what it tells you is that when you had not just the daily close, but a weekly and a monthly close over 3,000. A lot of the action today is attributable to the, the quant, sort of the passive money coming in based on those technical signals. From our point of view, what this does is rather than a breakout to a new higher range or imminent all-time highs, it's an extension of the range that we see roughly between the 200-week moving average, which is at uh, 2680 right now, and this area uh, slightly above 3,000, which we think is resistant. What we're trying to say is, is that as an investor, you need to be prepared for a pullback of 15% or so. We're not saying it's a definite. Uh, the summer is likely to be less volatile. But when you think about the previous 11 years bull market, uh, our advice has always been when we felt stocks were getting ahead of themselves to prepare for pullbacks of 10 to 15%. 
Now that's centered really more around 15%. But you're still forecasting new highs for the markets by 2021. So this could be potentially a sharp uh, recovery from that oh, yeah, 10 to 15% absolute, pullback. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think about it in volatility terms, you know, we are in a new range for volatility. We spent several years with the VIX bouncing sort of between 10 and 20, and we would expect uh, the next several years for the VIX to be bouncing between, call it 20 and 40 or perhaps higher. And within that context, it's very reasonable to expect 15% moves up and down. And ultimately, in our, in our view, is if, if the economy recovers at a pace whereby you sort of buy the economy enough time for medical development, that's really the recipe that gets you to new highs next year. All right, Julian, great to speak with you. Thank you, Julian Emanuel, Thank you. BTIG. Brian Kelly, what do you uh, make of Julian's comments? You know, it's interesting when Julian talks about the delayed stimulus, because as we get towards the end of June, some of this kind of initial uh, sugar high that came in with this big uh, stimulus packages, both on the fiscal and the monetary side, those start to lose a little bit of their impact. So it'll be interesting to see as the country reopens, as businesses reopen, as they're 25%, 50% full, what does that do to the economy? And I think that is what Julian's reflecting in some of his commentary there and his view that, hey, we could have a correction here. And I think that's probably more aligned with my view is that, listen, if you're inclined to buy dips in this market, then at certain times you need to be taking profits to raise some cash so you can buy that dip. This is not a terrible time to do that. Take a little bit of profit, watch the market. Let's see what happens as we get through June and into July in this summer. Let's see if there's continued infection rates. Uh, and then you can make a decision whether or not you want to deploy another 10 or 15%, but at least take a little bit of profit here. I think, I think Julian, I think I'm on the same side as them. All right, coming up, the race for a cure heating up today. We'll tell you about a double dose of headlines from two big drug makers. And later, a burrito blowout. Shares at Chipotle red hot today after the company got a new street high price target. We're digging in on that call when Fast Money returns. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. We got a double dose of headlines from two major drug makers today on their coronavirus treatments. Let's get to Meg Terrell with all the details. Hey, Meg. Hey, Mal. Well, let's start with Eli Lilly. They announced this morning that they had dosed the first patients in a phase one clinical trial of their antibody treatment for COVID-19. This is the first of this class of drugs to enter the clinic. Uh, and they derived the medicine from a survivor of COVID-19, one of the earliest patients in the United States to have recovered from the disease. Now, it's an antibody drug that is designed both to potentially treat the disease and, if it's successful, to even potentially prevent it. Uh, so they're beginning this phase one trial in about 32 patients and expect the results by the end of June. And this puts them ahead of Regeneron, which is also expected to begin human clinical trials this month of its antibody approach. Uh, Lily, with its partner, Abcellera was expected to begin in July, so they've accelerated those timelines. Uh, they have slightly different approaches. Lily's is one single antibody, whereas Regeneron's is a cocktail of two different antibodies. So 
uh, Regeneron's approach potentially, some argue, could protect better against any mutations that they see in the virus. The Lilly said so far what they've seen in terms of mutations, uh, this antibody blocks uh, against all of those, but they say they are going to continue to look at it. Now over to Gilead, that stock down today, uh, even as they reported a positive phase three trial of their drug remdesivir. This was in more moderate patients who were still hospitalized with COVID-19 pneumonia, but did not require oxygen. Uh, it did show that those on a five-day course of the drug were 65% more likely to improve clinically versus the standard of care. However, when patients got a 10-day course, while that trended positively, that was not statistically significant. So analysts essentially saying this further shows that drug works, it does have a benefit, but the benefit uh, isn't a huge one. So kind of further spelling out uh, what we already know about remdesivir, Mel. Baird's analyst, uh, who is already a skeptic of Gilead, said marginal clinical benefit, um, which really sounds like it, it won't even, it won't be completely viable as a commercial product in that the, the demand won't be there because it's so marginal in terms of the impact. Well, I think the demand is there because it, it has some impact. And right now, it's the only thing that's really been proven to work. And so the key question for Gilead is really the supply. Right now, they're working off a donated supply, uh, and they're trying to ramp it up. And then we're going to hear over the next few weeks probably where they're going to price this medicine. And, of course, there's a huge debate over a, where they should price it, and B, will they make money from this drug? Because, you know, Brian's saying this isn't going to be a big uh, impact on them. Uh, but for now, it is the only drug that's proved to have any effect on COVID-19. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, keeping on top of all these developments for us. Um, Tim Seymour, you know, this is a conversation we've had time and time again in terms of how we yeah. view uh, the company that seems to come up with the holy grail of treatment or vaccine or whatnot. That's amazing. Um, you know, as people who, who face the threat, that's great to hear. But as from an investor standpoint, is it going to be Roach and Tamiflu all over again where it was an initial bump yeah. and then it tails off? And, and I think Gilead is is that stock that, that is the, the at least the proxy case to, to examine that. Um, you know, if we think about Gilead, I, I think it's had a bigger impact really for market days and for a catalyst to the market in some sense of of, of that we are going to get uh, treatment, uh, again, not vaccine. And, and I think that's really you know, the, the, the most important part of what these headlines have been about for any of them, uh, whether it was Abbott on testing, you know, and, and even on some level, uh, as we got into the Moderna news, I, I think this has been more about market headlines. Uh, with Gilead, this is a stock that's largely been sideways for two years. Uh, and this is a stock that's largely a very strong balance sheet, has dabbled in CAR-T, uh, has been looking how to get past declining HCV and HIV success stories. Um, and, and so it's, it's not really a catalyst for the stock. And again, we've watched how it went from being a driver to short-term movement to being something that even even if we had fantastic news tomorrow out of Gilead, we wonder how profitable. Yeah, and yet coronavirus has been a catalyst for investors to get into the IBB ETF, Jeff, and that's part of the reason why we've seen this leg higher on IBB. I'm wondering where you stand on it. So, I mean, overall, IBB's done really well year to date. It actually broke out of a three-year trading range, and from that point, it's gone in a beeline up to its next level of technical resistance, which was really the all-time high we saw in July of 2015. So it's at another difficult technical level now after that run between that breakout. Um, it's not cheap now. Um, perhaps that doesn't matter if we break through this technical level. Maybe the momentum carries it higher, um, but I would be somewhat cautious. And either way, we're at an important price juncture here, so I would watch it over the 
next couple of days just to see how it reacts. But, you know, I don't think you can trade any of these names based on the headlines. I think there's just too much volatility. Um, sure, some might benefit in the near term um, if things go well, but really it's like throwing darts. It's going to be really difficult to pick the winners and losers beforehand. Um, and Gilead and Eli Lilly, they're just two very different stocks. So Tim mentioned it. You know, Gilead has a good balance sheet, uh, $20 billion in cash. They have a lot of irons in the fire, but some of those are going to need to come to fruition because earnings growth has been pretty anemic over the past number of years. But at less than 12 times forward earnings, not a bad risk reward. Then you have a stock like Lilly where the earnings and the growth is much more apparent, 30% uh, EPS growth um, over Q1 2019, but you're paying up for it. You're paying 21 times. So Lily's perhaps the safer play here, but there's probably less upside. All right. Coming up, a virtual walkout at Facebook. A CEO Mark Zuckerberg comes under fire from employees. But is social media in a lose-lose situation when it comes to handling civil unrest? Gene Munster will join us straight ahead. Plus, a new all-time high for Zoom as the company gets ready to report earnings. Will tomorrow's results justify these gains? We will find out what the options markets are saying. Fast Money's back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story out of Facebook. Employees staging a virtual walkout today in protest of the company's policies towards some, some of President Trump's posts. Let's get to Julia Borson with all the details. Julia. Well, Melissa, it's unclear just how many Facebook employees are participating in that virtual walkout today, but Facebook is aware that this is happening and will not require those participating to use their paid time off to participate in this virtual walkout today. Now, a handful of employees are tweeting, including one employee writing, I will be participating in today's virtual walkout in solidarity with the black community inside and outside of Facebook, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Now, this comes after a number of senior Facebook employees tweeted their outrage at Zuckerberg's decision not to flag the president's post Thursday night that could incite violence. The president wrote, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Facebook did issue a statement in response to its employee back backlash to this policy, saying, quote, we recognize the pain many of our people are feeling right now, especially our black community. We encourage employees to speak openly when they disagree with leadership. As we face additional difficult decisions around content ahead, we'll continue seeking their honest feedback. Now, it's my understanding that groups within Facebook are currently working on a list of demands for management around this issue. Mark Zuckerberg is hosting his weekly employee meeting tomorrow. It was originally scheduled for Thursday, but the company moved that up. We can expect that meeting really to focus on Zuckerberg taking the opposite stance of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, who did decide to flag and put a warning on 
Uh, similar, very similar tweets from the president. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. There are so many different layers to this conversation, Steve Grasso. I mean, there is the layer of what is good for business, and then there is the layer of dealing with what your employees want you to do, because employees obviously are a very important part of the Facebook and, and Facebook culture. Um, so I don't know where you go first. Yeah, so, so it's, it's so difficult on this because when I understand uh, where Facebook is leaning on this, because if you start to fact check and you start to put out there what you think is the truth, how do you know it's the truth? Isn't that up for debate? So it leads to another domino of questioning. So I think Facebook said they're not going to do anything. Twitter is doing something. And Snap said that Twitter said they're not going to accept any political ads. Facebook said they'll accept them, but they won't fact check. Snap said, basically, they'll fact check and they'll accept the ads. So for me, I'm still in Snap. It's not overbought just yet. It's at a recent high. Once it breaches over that $20 level, I think you're looking at mid-20. So I think, yeah, I think you have another 25% upside in Snap. When you get nothing but political headwinds in Twitter, and I do believe that Facebook is sort of you know, walking that, that fine line right now. I understand both sides, but it's really tough to say I'm the fact checker and then you're going to be opening yourself up to a bunch of different fact checks. So I think he's doing the right thing for his employees, and I think he's right, doing the right thing on the political front, too. All right, let's bring in Gene Munster of Loop Ventures to help us through this. Uh, Gene, great to have you with us. Um, from an investor standpoint, what do you want a company to do? You want them to do what Mark Zuckerberg is doing, and uh, Steve nailed it, is that this is Pandora's box. And uh, trying to regulate and legislate truth is uh, impossible. You will never please both sides. I've thought a lot about truth recently, and even things that can be very clear may not be viewed as, as accurate from another's perspective. And so uh, the right thing is to do what Zuckerberg's doing. And this has uh, the implications for Facebook. Let's set aside all of the, the emotion and the, the, the change that needs to happen. If we just take, it, for example, the, uh, where Facebook stands, is that if they uh, shift on this topic, it will create a, uh, a significant impact to the rest of their business. They do. It's important to note. They do uh, uh, police uh, for uh, hate speech. And they do work with authorities. So there is some fabric where Facebook does uh, some good. I, I think also part of the conversation here, so to answer your question, Melissa, I think Zuckerberg is doing the right thing. He's going to uh, be criticized, but he, I think, should ultimately stand his ground. And I think that this uh, topic will not go away either. We are years away from figuring this out. So does that mean, by extrapolation, Gene, that Twitter and Jack Dorsey is doing the wrong thing in terms of what is best for business? Uh, yes, and uh, the reason is ultimately you can face some alienation. Social platforms are by definition social, which is different than a typical media outlet. And so because of that, uh, you start to skate around some edges what Twitter is doing that can have a bigger impact on, um, you know, potentially engagement longer term, the people that want to participate in the platform. Um, so that's the risk. So that the answer is uh, Zuckerberg is doing the right thing. And I think that uh, there's even a bigger picture beyond uh, kind of the right and wrong here. 
is I think that I don't want to take it to a, a, a higher level, but there is something that is just toxic about social media more broadly. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that uh, some of that needs to be addressed. Don't know how you do that, but uh, I think that's another topic that needs to be part of the conversation. Yeah. BK, got a question? I do. For Gene, you know, to me, the stri- this strikes me a bit um, if you brought it out to kind of ESG investing, right, environmental social governance. Is there a difference in terms of, and I'm talking just purely on the business, we're talking about, you know, how this impacts the actual dollars and cents, but is there a difference from what Twitter's doing, which is from the CEO level down making the decision, whereas Facebook, it's coming from your stakeholders, your employees. It strikes me that that might have a bigger impact on your business than just a single CEO decision saying, I'll take the heat on this. But if your employees are suggesting it, doesn't, does that change in your mind the way that Facebook operates? Unfortunately, I don't think it does. And the decision does come from the top. Zuckerberg has control of the company. And so I think uh, ultimately is that uh, this comes back to a painful topic. A lot of focus on it today. It makes a ton of sense. But uh, ultimately, the best thing for Facebook to do for all the employees longer term, they're going to upset a portion of that. uh, That portion will be heard. But ultimately, the best thing for the platform, and that, uh, in respect to the business of Facebook, if in fact you are in a for-profit business, which Facebook is, mm-hmm. the best thing uh, I believe is for them to uh, hold the line, because at the core essence of this is you cannot legislate or regulate truth. Gene, great to speak with you. Thank you, Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Uh, Jeff, you agree with Gene? I, I do, and I think the Pandora's box analogy is, is a good one. And I, I think you're also seeing some of what he's talking about actually manifest in the way some of these companies are functioning from a business perspective. If you look at what has happened between some of the major ad players, what's held up in this environment where companies have pulled back ad spending are these direct response ads. So uh, when you're driven immediately to another website, you buy something, you order food, or you download an app. That's what's held up. And it's been Google, it's been Facebook, and Snap has been invited to that party as well. And they've actually done quite well. I think actually 50% of Snap's ad revenue is now being driven by this new trend of direct direct response ads. Twitter is not participating. So I don't know exactly why that is, but I think there are some fundamental problems there. So whether whether it's what we're talking about here or some other problems specifically with their ad platform, I think it's all manifesting in uh, different fortunes for the way some of these businesses are able to handle this environment and how they'll do going forward in the ad space. I'm glad you brought up ads, right? Because that is that is the arbiter of, of how companies are doing and, and how it is weathering whatever controversy it is weathering. And we we heard today from a number of companies come out to him, you know, condemning the violence, the you know, the racial injustice, et cetera, et cetera. Taking a stand, are these the very same advertisers who might say, you know what, Facebook, we're not gonna we're not gonna put that ad there this time around. Right. Well, it, you know, advertisers that want a stand of some kind because socially that that's very important to them. Um, so I, I think this gets back to you, you, you can't make both sides happy. Uh, and it's very difficult to be the arbiter of truth. We're all talking about this. The, the great irony for me is that Facebook was largely vilified for not being the arbiter of truth in, in the last election. Um, so, and, and the other great irony is, of course, that Facebook is pushing again to all-time highs and was up 3% today while it was smack uh, in the news for this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes you get this sense that Facebook, uh, which derated 
around the 2016 election in the sense of in the aftermath of that, we still couldn't really calculate the cost to their business uh, to, for security and, and privacy issues. Um, that the market is actually re-rating this company now because they're taking a clear stand of not taking a stand. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's been an extraordinary couple of days for Facebook trading because uh, historically I would have thought this would have been something that would have pushed it down. Coming up, taking off after months of struggles, why one airline ETF is seeing a sudden surge in investor interest. And speaking of liftoff, a historic launch for SpaceX over the weekend, what it means for the future of the space race. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Up, up, and away for the airlines. Check out the Jets ETF soaring. Investors betting big on a recovery and piling into this ETF. And get this, according to FactSet, back in March, Jets held around $33 million in assets. And today, it holds around $950 million. So is it time to get on board with the airlines? And I know all of you guys are pretty jazzed about this sector. Beeks? Uh, no, you know what? I'm going to go no. It is, it is not. You want to trade this thing? You want to <laughs> trade for a breakout over the next couple weeks? But, but longer term, I just don't see it. I mean, look at the environment we're in. One of the things is international travel. That feeds into a lot of these domestic airlines. Delta's particularly exposed to international travel. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. They still have too many pilots. They still have too many planes. And then finally, the one thing that a lot of people don't talk about with this is that RV sales and rentals are going through the roof. Once you buy an RV... You stay with that RV. You're driving around the country in that thing. You're not getting on a plane. So I think over the medium to long term, I am a seller of this sector. I think WFRV might be fun to do, work from RV. I mean, driving around and just broadcasting <laughs> fast from wherever. Um, you know, there is, there, is an argument, awesome. <laughs> there is an argument to be made in terms of the kind of airline that you invest in. Um, and one thinking goes that if you have an airline that depends on the hub and spoke kind of model where you fly into one major airport like Atlanta and transfer and go to another destination, that those won't do as well as sort of the point-to-point -point, um, direct flight airlines because people can't won't want to transfer the transfer schedules will be really really tight steve um things change when there are temperatures to be taken and, and things like that yeah so i think when you're looking at this i look at i look through the prism of domestic versus international sort of uh the way you just laid it out there so i'm still long a spirit airlines but i i think you have to look back on all these charts and look back to may 4th why May 4th? That was the date of the Buffett sell-off. And then shortly after that, we had the CEO of Boeing say that one of the airlines was going to go out of business by, by September. If you look at domestic versus international, you're going to be left with a bunch of carriers that will probably come back sooner because domestic is definitely going to come back online sooner than international. Now, we get back to this ETF. The ETF has all the top names. Southwest, American, Delta, United are its top four holdings. So when you look at that, it's got 42% of the fund in those names. The best balance sheets when we went into Corona were Delta and Southwest. When you come out, they will still be the best on the balance sheet front. Those are long-term investments. The bounces are the domestic players. Jeff Mills, I have a question for you. Would you invest in the airlines or would you invest in a Boeing or neither? 
Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with none of the above. None of the <laughs> above didn't seem to work too well in school, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go none of the above here. I just think it's it's too risky right now. Um, I do. Th I'm gonna approach the airlines from a corporate travel perspective. So we've had this obviously forced technology experiment where we're all working from home, and companies realize, mine included, that you know what we can be pretty efficient and not be shipping people all over the country. So you know I think that there is an argument to be made that of course people are gonna fly again, but perhaps the future looks different enough that it's going to be a more permanent headwind for some of these airlines. And thinking about the names, uh, Steve mentioned Delta as an example. You know, they, they have a stronger balance sheet, they have less debt, um, but even looking at a Delta, they have about 50% of their revenues derived from premium cabin seating. So if you see business travel fall, I would imagine that makes up a fair percentage of that premium cabin. So even there, you can see a specific impact on one of the better airlines. And I'll put my macroeconomic hat on for a second. It tends to be the one that, that fits best for me. But ultimately, this is going to come down to an, an employment situation. You know, As we think about people getting back to work and getting back into the labor force, are they going to travel? Are they going to play for, pay for plane tickets? Um, right now, if you look in April, 18 million of the 21 million people who reported being unemployed said it was temporary. Um, now there's paper being circulated from the MBER saying that permanent unemployment is going to be more like 42%. So maybe the truth is somewhere in between, but I think it's going to be really important to see how much of the unemployment we're seeing right now is actually temporary. My guess is it's going to be more than is currently reported, and I think that ultimately feeds into everything, obviously, but airlines specifically as well. And we might be in an environment where tickets are more expensive because of social distancing, Tim. Where do you stand on airlines? Yeah, yeah well, I, first of all, I, I think if people are making an ETF call on the sector, that makes sense to me, right? They're, they're obviously making a diversified uh, thematic bet that airlines were overdone. Uh, top analysts like Hunter K. from Wolf, I think it was Thursday or Friday, went from underweight to market weight uh, on airlines, signaling uh, greater clarity, greater insight into uh, there has been the beginning of at least some turnaround. Not just clarity, but some turnaround in terms of where they're seeing uh, capacity cutbacks start to meet some increase in demand. Everything these guys are talking about is the most profitable part of the airline's business has been business travel and international, and those are things that are going to come back more slowly. Uh, but if I was investing now for the long term in ETFs often, um, you know, they call it portable alpha, whatever you, there's a lot of buzzwords in the ETF community. But to own an ETF that gives me exposure to the airline industry that I am sure People are going to be flying dramatically, uh, certainly at rates significantly higher from where we are in the next two years. Um, mm -hmm. That's why you would be investing in something like this. That's an extraordinary move in AUM. Uh, but investing thematically in this sector now at these lows where you've priced in those kinds of bottoms that Steve talked about, those are important days. Um, and I do think I would own airlines long term. I do own airlines long term. Coming up, shares of Chipotle sizzling higher today. We'll tell you what's got Wall Street so hot on this fast food stock. Plus, Zoom hitting an all-time high ahead of its earnings tomorrow, and options traders are betting on an even bigger rally on the result. We'll break down the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chipotle shares sizzling today after Wedbush slapped a new street-high price target of 1200 bucks on the stock. That's 38% higher than the firm's previous price target of 870 The analyst says recent channel checks point to a continued ramp in same-source sales growth. Um, so, Brian Kelly, what do you make of this? I mean, part of it is uh, that the 2022 expectation may be too conservative because of the mix shift to digital. Yeah, I, well, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, I think in this environment, if you look at kind of these, these restaurants that are similar to Chipotle, it's all about this digital ordering and kind of the curbside pickup. Chipotle's 
pre pretty well suited for that. Yes, they have that line that you need to stand in, but if you go onto their app, you actually get a pretty good experience there. So I think they're actually benefiting. Effectively, anything with a drive-through is benefiting in this environment, and I expect that to be a, a shift here that as more people get comfortable using that digital product, that they're going to continue to use it going into the future. And again, I think Chipotle's done a pretty good job here. So of, of all the things I've been somewhat you know, sour tonight on, you got to take some profits and you got to watch out for airlines, I actually think Chipotle's probably not so bad. The stock and the food I'm taking, uh, Brian Kelly. <laughs> yes. Actually, yes. actually, I've been eating a fair amount of it since there's one right across the street from me. I know exactly, I know I exactly which one you're talking about. You know, we were talking to Mike Novogratz about a month ago, and he was talking about the trades that he favored in this environment. And he did mention the drive-through trade, Tim. So those companies that are best suited to doing business in, in this age, and, and it is the drive-through. It is the drive-through, but that, that's a lot of burritos out till 2022, and 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 at 87 times trailing, and and you know, as the viewers of this show know, I've 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 not understood the last three or four hundred dollars of this move. So, um, but but I I still think you have a dynamic here. Yes, I get higher unit sales, higher profitability, high essentially higher profitability on unit growth is what's being talked about. The stores that are at 50% capacity are showing mid single digits. Sorry low teens uh, growth numbers, but, but for how long? And, and, and I, I think that there's a dynamic. Why are we rewarding Chipotle? And, and what we see from a lot of analysts is this glass half full in assessing the rebound based upon partial capacity, when we know that we're also rewarding those companies that favor cooking at home and spices mm -hmm. and, and the companies that are basically going to benefit from a secular change in how we cook and shop. And so I, I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think this valuation is supposed to go higher in this environment, despite the fact that uh, the tremendous work that this CEO has done on digital and the ordering and the loyalty programs, um, it's not enough to take it higher here. All right, coming up, shares of Zoom speeding higher. And options traders are betting this record run is only just getting started. We've got much more fast money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Zoom zooming to a new all-time high today. The company announcing new security features while analysts over at Rosenblatt up their price target on the stock. Zoom reports earnings tomorrow. Options traders are betting this record run is just getting started. Mike's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So Zoom saw more than double the average daily call volume today. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about $30 higher or lower. That's 15 percent of the stock price. And speculative options traders were betting that the rally could continue. The most active were the weekly 200 strike calls. Those were trading for about $12. They actually closed substantially higher because the stock closed very close to its highs. Those traders are making bullish bets that the stock is actually going to rally out of earnings tomorrow. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, Final Trades. An out-of-this-world interview coming your way tomorrow. NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley will be on CNBC to discuss their historic launch into space. Be sure to catch that. That's tomorrow, 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. All right. Time for the final trade. Jeff Mills. So even after the run it's at, I think Lululemon's worth taking a look at. It has an unbelievably loyal customer base that continues to grow. Uh, I like exposure to the higher-end consumer in this environment. The stock might be a little bit ahead of itself here, but on any pullback, I'd be buyer Lulu. Brian Kelly. You know, I still like gold, but it was interesting today. As gold was down, that other metal, silver, was up for today. I switched my gold for silver for a trade. Steve Grasso. 
I'm sticking with the airlines. Spirit Airlines is up 100% since the middle of May. I think you can get another 100% out of this in the next couple of months. Stay in spirit. Save is the ticker symbol. Tim Seymour, what do you say? Uh, I've got so much to say, Mel, but uh, we've got 30 seconds. So. Show that's come to it. All right. Well, so, so he's talking about, Brian's talking about the silver medal. How about the little yellow medal, Dr. Copper? How about the move to almost close to 250 today? Uh, I talked about the dollars pullback and what that means for miners. Freeport Max, my final trade. I think this move continues along with reflation in resources. All right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.